I mentioned, as, uh, I hope you remember if you were here, I mentioned something about my coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I uh, mentioned that in the days after my conversion, do you remember I spoke about my naivety? That I, in the days after my conversion, I expected all my friends to become Christians. I just, I thought everyone was going to be saved. I just thought it was a matter of time or a matter of me just telling people about Jesus and everyone was going to be converted. So that's what I said I thought was going to happen. What did actually happen? Well, in the days after uh, my conversion, what I did was I spoke to my best friend. Now, this was a guy who was my best friend. You know, this is a guy, like, we grew up together, and, uh, you know, we got into trouble together, and we traveled together, you know, and every since my best friend. So what did I do? I sat him down. And I just as simply as I could told him what God had done. You know, I, I said to him, you know, God had made me aware of how I stood before him. That I was now aware that I'd actually offended God. But God had done more than just reveal that to me. What God had done was actually save me. He showed me what Jesus has done for me. It was death and resurrection. That's my best friend. I'm telling him this. And and how does he respond? Well, he got up and he made his excuses and he left. And to this day, and we're talking maybe 15, 17 years later, I've never seen that guy again. Now, why begin a sermon like that? Well, this morning together in Scripture, we are going to consider something of the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Like together, as we look at these verses here about John the Baptist, we are going to consider some of the responses, some of the reactions that you will get and I will get if we live for Christ and if we tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship. Because you see, throughout Mark's Gospel, frequently we encounter... Something that is called the Markin sandwich technique. Don't you love that idea that a theologian somewhere has, he was obviously hungry at the time, but he has named something the Markin sandwich technique. That is marvelous, isn't it? It's, it's a great name, the Markin sandwich technique. But do you, do you see what it is if you think about Mark's gospel? Do you see what it is? Like frequently what Mark does in the gospel is he will begin a story, he'll begin an account, but before he ends the account, what does he do? He adds a little bit of filling in there, doesn't he? Before he ends the account, he will insert another account in the middle to make a theological point. Mark and Sandwich technique. Now, if you reverse your way through Mark's gospel, maybe you'll just think of maybe an instance of that. Maybe more than one instance. Well, take Jairus' daughter. It wasn't that long ago that we looked at Jairus' daughter, was it? Remember what happened there? Mark begins the story, and then before he ends the story of Jairus' daughter, what does he do? He inserts another account of that woman. Remember the woman who was unwell and who grabs Jesus' garment? Or I tell you what, go for the parable of the sower. 
Here's another one. Jesus starts the parable of the sower, but before he explains it, before Mark tells how Jesus explains it, what does Mark do? He inserts another section that deals with the parables more generally. So are you following me here? You've got this marking sandwich technique. Now, here's the thing. In light of that technique, think about what it is that we're dealing with here. Now, were you here last time? A couple, what was it, two weeks ago that we're in Mark? Do you remember what happened? What did Mark begin last time? What did Brad read the first bit there? Mark begun the story of Jesus sending 12. Do you remember that? He sent them out with very little and he sent them out in pairs. He begun, Mark begins that story. And then next time, next week, God willing, we'll see the end of that account because the disciples will come back and they will report back to Jesus what's happened. And what does Mark do here? In between that account, he inserts the death and beheading of John the Baptist. Wait a minute. Do you see the the point that he's making in doing that? By arranging things like this, Mark is showing us that Christian discipleship is not a walk in the park. Isn't that what's going on here? By inserting the death of John the Baptist into this account, what's Mark showing us? He's showing the people of God the potential cost of being sent out into the world by Jesus. And it's that. It's the potential cost, the cost of discipleship that you and I will consider just now from Scripture. So with these things said and by way of introduction, I would ask you, if you haven't already done so, just to have your Bibles open in front of you. Maybe you're using the church Bible. Maybe you've got a Bible on your phone, but have Scripture open there in front of you. In Mark chapter 6, Now, although we read from verse 6, it's that section, John the Baptist beheaded. So if you're looking at it, it's from verse 14 to verse 29. That's our section that we're focusing on this morning. Cost of discipleship. Right. I think the first thing that we see here, the first thing that we need to, to focus on, is the truth that godly conviction, it will meet great confusion. That's the first thing that jumps out of this text. Godly conviction is going to meet in our lives great confusion. Confusion. John the Baptist beheaded. And confusion? Like how do we see in those verses that we've read together, how do we see confusion. Well, first of all, we see it in these misunderstandings people have about Jesus here. Would you do this with me? Would you look at your Bibles? Like, isn't it true that sort of immediately we are told, told about the results of the disciples' ministry? So verse 12, if you look at it, you're seeing that Jesus has sent out the disciples like two by two out into the world sent them out and what they told to do they're preaching about repentance okay now that's what they're doing look at verse 14 we see the sort of immediate results of that what's it say jesus name has jesus name has become well known so do you see it the 12 have gone out they've been sent out by jesus 
And the result of that is that Jesus' name has become famous in society, I guess you could say. Now, despite that, so everybody knows Jesus' name. Jesus is famous in this part of the world just now. Despite that, we've got, we're told to hear some pretty wacky ideas, aren't we, about who people thought Jesus was. So I would ask you to do this with me. See if you can just identify the three very, very strange ideas that people had about Jesus. We're told about three Three things that they thought Jesus was. So who did society think Jesus was? Look at verse 14 for the first one. Some thought that that Jesus was John the Baptist. (laughs) Which is like, it is a bit crazy, is it not? So you, you can see this. They're hearing about repentance. They're hearing about Jesus. And a lot of people in society, they are thinking that Actually, it's this guy here that we're dealing with today who's been beheaded has come back to life. So they think that Jesus is John the Baptist. That's one of the reasons. Look at who else do other people think he is in verse 15. So some think he's John the Baptist. Other think Jesus is Elijah. Are you with me that that seems, that seems pretty random, doesn't it? Um, why did they, why did they go for Elijah? Like, why don't they go for, I didn't they think that Jesus was Moses? I might have gone for Moses. Why not Isaiah? Why is it Elijah? Well, Malachi chapter 3, it prophesied that a messenger would arrive prior to the appearance of the Messiah. And the Jews of the time they interpreted that messenger, that precursor to the Christ, to be Elijah. So do you see what's happening at this point in society? Jesus comes preaching and teaching, and who do people think he is? They think, wow, this is significant. This is a major moment. Wow, this is the precursor to the Messiah. It's not the Christ. They don't think it's the Christ. But they think, wow, the messenger is here. This is Elijah. So some think he's John the Baptist. Some think he's Elijah. Who do others think he is? Have a look with me. Verse 15 still. It says, still others claimed that he was a prophet. Just like one of the prophets eh, from long ago. Isn't that such an anticlimax? <laughs> Isn't it? Do you see what's happening there? Some people are thinking, oh, Jesus is incredibly special. He's a precursor to the Christ. Other things, wow, is this guy raised to life? What do other people think? They think, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. They think he's just another prophet. You know, okay, there was these godly men from years ago. He's just another one of the guys like that. Do you see it? Like, do you see, can I ask you, do you see the big picture here? Like, people are hearing about Jesus. Society, the general public, have a, a vague idea about Jesus. But there's just this massive bewilderment. There's just misunderstanding after misunderstanding. There's just this huge scene of confusion. So we have the confusion of the general public. But you know what? I, I think what's even more marked is the confusion of one of the main characters here, King Herod. The confusion of King Herod. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, some of the guys, some of the men in the church, we got together and uh, we played football. I know, seven-a-side football, something like that. Now, sounds fine. 
Uh, the first few minutes of it were, were, were problematic for itself, uh, for various reasons. But one of the reasons was that I was not the only Andy playing. <laughs> and so you can kind of maybe imagine what that was like. Andy Beatson was playing too. And so for the first five minutes, I was like a startled rabbit. Everyone shouting, Andy over here, Andy over here, Andy watch out. <laughs> and sometimes they're referring to me and sometimes they weren't. And I was, oh, it's confusing. Too many people with the same name. Now, isn't it like that in the New Testament when it comes to the Herods? You know, we... We look and we read the New Testament and we can be confused about the various Herods here. And we need actually to get this right. Now this King Herod that you and I are dealing with here, it's not the same Herod as the Herod at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that? This, that was Herod the Great. Now the person that we are dealing with here is his son. So this is Herod Antipas. Now, of course, we're going to deal with how this man puts John to death. We'll deal with that in a moment. But for the time being, I would just ask you to consider how that Herod engaged with John when John was in prison. So would you look at it with me? Just look at uh, verse 20. And would you not agree that there's just a weird, very odd sense of respect. Isn't it odd? Look what we're told here. We're told that Herod viewed John as a godly man. As a holy man? And then, look at this. What is it that Herod liked to do? It's the same verse. I mean, doesn't it? Don't you find it staggering? Don't, isn't it mind-blowing? What does he like to do? He likes to listen to John preach. And this is, he's headed on the pass. He's just about to behead John. He's a wicked tyrant. And what does he like to spend his time doing this king? He likes to listen to a message about repentance from John the Baptist. Now that might sound positive to us, I think. You know, we might think, oh, that's a good thing. He likes to listen to preaching. But we'd ask you to read it carefully. What does it say prior to that statement at the end of verse 20? When Herod heard John, he was what? He was greatly puzzled. Do you see it? We are at the same theme again. Herod, like the general public, like society at large, he was confused by the things of truth. Yes, he liked to listen to the preaching, but here was a man who was absolutely blinded to the matters and to the glory of the gospel itself. And friends, this is what I think is happening this morning. I think in his word, God is taking you and I to a truth that we need to be reminded of often as the people of God. And it's this truth, that the reception of the gospel, it is a spiritual work. The reception of the gospel is a spiritual work. Now, do you see what that means? When we take it so lightly, this idea of conversion, 
this idea of a, a soul being born again. But do you see what it is dependent upon? The Holy Spirit of God himself has to work in a person's life. The Holy Spirit of God has to work a miracle. Like there has to be this unique, momentous, particular work in a person's life. And if there isn't, what happens? That person is blind. That person is is in blackness, in darkness. This person is bewildered. This person is confused. Isn't that what we see here? I mean, think about the general public. They wouldn't have just heard about Jesus. Do you know some of those people there who are thinking Jesus is Elijah and they're thinking he's John the Baptist? They would have seen Jesus. I think about Herod. You imagine it? He has heard John the Baptist in person preach a message of repentance and still what? Still what? Nothing. Bewilderment at the whole thing. Friends, what do we do practically? I mean, what is the application of this? Well, surely in some ways it's obvious for us. The people of God must be people of deep and sincere prayer. Like you, you've got friends and you've got family members and colleagues who are not Christians. What do you pray for? You're anything like me. You pray for opportunities, right? You pray actually for courage as well at the same time, don't you? You pray that, oh Lord, would you give me strength and boldness? And would you provide an opportunity here? Now that's great. We need to pray that. But do you see what else in light of this we need to pray for? We need to pray for understanding. We need to pray that, that when we have got that opportunity to speak to somebody, that they would actually comprehend what we have to say. And, and, who do we pray for? What does the text say? Some thought that Jesus was just another one of the prophets. I mean, don't we pray for our Muslim friends and our Muslim colleagues? And then think about Herod. Don't we even just now, right now, pray for those who are unbelieving in here? That they wouldn't be in some sort of weird way, sort of intrigued or stimulated by preaching. No, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would work, don't we? The people of God, don't we pray that there would be even now in here today, this morning, comprehension. Don't we pray that people might see the glory of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Secondly, godly conviction will meet great contempt. So godly conviction, we see, is going to meet great confusion. People are bewildered often by the gospel. But secondly, godly conviction will meet great contempt. Contempt. Would you agree with me that the royal dynasty and the family that we're dealing dealing with in Mark chapter 6 is kind of confusing? Uh, I mean, even the names are confusing, are they not? 
you've got Herod married to Herodias. Um, that's confusing. But then when we try and unpack that a little bit, it's even more confusing, isn't it? So Herod is married to Herodias. Now, let's get this right. Herodias was the former wife of, wait for it, Herod's brother. The former wife of Herod's brother, who just to confuse me, was, although his name was Philip, he was sometimes called Herod Philip as well. Now, I think what we have to appreciate um, when we're studying this text is that that relationship between Herod and Herodias, that married relationship, it wasn't just a wee bit shocking um, (laughs) because of the close connections that are going on there. It's not just shocking. What you and I have to appreciate is the fact that that relationship was a clear infringement of God's law. Leviticus 18, it stated that a woman was not allowed to marry her former husband's brother, not allowed to do it, if her former husband was still alive. And in this case, that is exactly what was what was happening here. He was still alive. So what does John the Baptist do about this? What does he do? I mean, this is a sinful, immoral, law-breaking marriage. A prominent, high-profile marriage. What does John do about this? Is he going to let it slide? Because if he says something, there's going to be trouble. Does he just let it slide? Of course he doesn't. I mean, this is sinful. So what does John the Baptist, the man of God, do? He speaks out against that marriage. He speaks out against Herod and Herodias. Now, here's what I want you to get. Now, one of the main themes, surely, of this portion of Scripture, one of the things that we have to wrestle with here, is the intensity of the subsequent hatred that Herodias has for John. Now, I'm asking you, when Brad read that out earlier on, did you pick up on the hatred? I mean, this woman is livid with John. I mean, she's raging with him. Like, how how dare he speak out against her marriage? She can do what she wants. How dare this guy, John, listen for? Do you see? I mean, she's furious with him. Now, what I want to do is just rest on that just for a moment and unpack that anger slightly. Now, you see that what Herodias does there is nurse a grudge. Don't you think that is one of the great phrases in the English language, isn't it? The NIV has that she nursed a grudge. And man, did she? Like you see that, that her anger towards John here wasn't just this sort of, you know, ferocious moment of anger and then it kind of passes and it subsides. You see that, that Herodias, no, she lets that anger towards John fester. Like she's, she holds on to that anger and she's looking for an opportunity to get back at John. And then what happens? What happens? Herod's got his birthday party and she sees in that an opportunity to get revenge. So here's a woman and she is nursing this grudge. Now, this is where we're going. This is what I think we miss. I think Herodias 
was also incredibly calculating here. I think we possibly misread this portion of Scripture often. Like, how do we view Herodias? We perhaps think about her as a bit of an opportunist, don't we? Do you see what I mean? Like, uh, Herod's having his party, in comes the girl and she's doing her dancing. Herod says, you can have anything you want, up to half my kingdom. She goes out to see her mum. And her mum just thinks, wow, this is a cracking opportunity. What will I ask for? I know what I'll ask for. Bring me John the Baptist's head. You see it? We see her as an opportunist. Now, if that is right, friends, it's just disgusting. I mean, it's just, I mean, the murderous intent there that she would ask for John the Baptist's head. I mean, it's, it's appalling. I think so. It's actually worse than that. See, I think she planned this whole episode. See, this banquet, this whole incident, I think this is all one big setup. How can I say that? Well, see this phrase that Herod says to his daughter. She's doing her dancing. She, I'll not impersonate the dancing, but she dances. And at the end of it, Herod says to her, what? He says, you can have you know, anything up to half of my kingdom. What you and I have to appreciate, see that phrase? It was a common, proverbial phrase of the time. You see it? Hosts often said things like that to entertainers who had pleased them and their guests. So do you see what's happening here? Alive, Herodias, anticipating that Herod might say something like that. What has she done? She has sent her daughter in there to dance provocatively. In fact, she's jeopardized the reputation of her daughter. And why? Why so that when Herod says that, and when her daughter comes out, what will happen? Herodias is there. In the corridors, let us say, ready and waiting to ask, go in and say, I want John the Baptist's head. I want his head. And friends, why is this the case? I mean, it's so chilling, but do you see why it is? It is all because John has stood up for godliness. It's all because John has dared to speak out for sin. So this is what I think we see here. Friends, there are people who by their habitual sin are resolutely opposed to God. It is a difficult truth, but it is one that we have to confront. That there are people that we will meet, there are people that we will witness to, there are perhaps people even in our lives who are in an irrational way and who are in a committed way filled with hatred for God and filled with hatred for the gospel. Now, what do we do? What do we do as the people of God with that truth? Can I suggest three practical things? One, we must continue to testify to godliness. And what's wonderful about this portion of Scripture is the language here. Like if we, if we 
were to look at the tense of the language here, what we would see is that John the Baptist did not speak up once against Herodias and Herod. (laughs) Despite all the hostility and despite all the danger, what the tense suggests is that John kept doing it. (laughs) Like he kept, kept on speaking out against this immoral relationship. Do you see the lesson for us? The church of Jesus Christ, even in an environment of hostility, we must continue to say sin is sin, regardless of the cost, regardless of the environment. Two, I think we learn here that we should not be so hard on each other. Again, I say to you, many of you, um, we have conversations about the unbelievers in your family and the unbelievers that you have at work and your group of friends that are not Christians. But isn't it true that we can be so hard on each other? Like, we can be hard on our ministers and our preachers. We can be hard on ourselves. And we can blame the way that the gospel is presented But think on Herodias and realize surely in her, regardless of who it is that is speaking, regardless of who it is that is presenting the gospel, some people are so hard. Some people will just point blank refuse to accept the wonder and the nature and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not be so hard on each other. And then the third practical thing is obviously, it's obviously the most obvious thing to say. We must pray. I mean, we don't just pray for opportunities. We don't just pray for understanding. What do we do in light of the contempt we see here? We must pray that people, as we speak to them about Jesus, would not be so resolutely defiant about what is godly and about what is gracious and about what is good. So we see that godly conviction will meet great confusion. It will meet great contempt. And then thirdly, we see that godly conviction will meet great cost. Okay, I'll I'll be frank and honest with you. I find this portion of Scripture a very difficult portion of Scripture the beheading of John the Baptist. I think it is difficult because it shows the church how little dignity uh, the people of God receive in this earth. I mean, if you consider and ponder how John dies here, I don't know what a prison in the first century in the Middle East would be like. But I imagine it would be horrific. And there's no brave heart moment, is there, for John. You know, there's no heroic last stand in this chapter. And this is John the Baptist. There's no famous last words. An executioner appears in the shadows of his prison. And in the blink of an eye, he's dragged John out. And he is executed and he is beheaded in the same prison that he's been held. I'm sure you would agree that it's John the Baptist and yet it is the most undignified end. 
And I need you to see there the potential cost of following Jesus. Isn't it the case that we're getting things wrong and we're thinking about following Jesus as being about friends and spending time with like-minded people? Isn't that what being a Christian's about? Or isn't being a Christian about, you know, just a community and loving and spending time in worship and praise? But aren't we seeing in these verses here something different? Aren't we seeing that following the Lord Jesus Christ, it can cost you your friends? And it can, I think, in the next few years for some of us, it can cost us our jobs. And if we were to live in Syria today, then maybe it would also cost us our heads. So how do we deal with that? Like, how do we understand that suffering? Or how do we interpret the suffering? Well, what we need to appreciate is that all the way through Mark's gospel, from start to end, the life of John the Baptist is seen in close connection with the life of Jesus himself. You follow me? Like John and Jesus are mentioned in continuity through Mark's gospel. You think back to Mark chapter 1. Wait a minute. The imprisonment of John the Baptist was actually the indicator for Jesus to begin his ministry. So John and Jesus in continuity together. And in light of that, do you see how we're supposed to read these verses here? You and I are supposed to look at the death of John the Baptist. And we are supposed to look through this to the second passion narrative in Mark's gospel. We are supposed to understand this, the cost of discipleship. We're supposed to understand this death by looking through it to the death that we are soon to commemorate here, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you walk with me, I think you'll see how Mark brings that out. Wait a minute. Think about the similarities between those two deaths. Both John and Jesus wrongfully arrested. Why? Because of their godliness. Both John and Jesus facing captors who revered them as holy Herod and Pilate. Both John and Jesus facing the implacable hatred of their enemies, Herodias and the Jewish establishment. Both John and Jesus seeing the yielding of their captors to the hostility of their enemies. Both John and Jesus executed in the most brutal ways the beheading and crucifixion. Both John and Jesus having their disciples go to the captors, request the body, having the bodies laid in the tomb. I could go on. I could go on. Do you see the point though? We are supposed to read this account 
interpreting it through the later death of Jesus. We are supposed to understand the cost of Christian discipleship. How? By looking to the cross. By looking to what the Lord Jesus Christ has endured for us. Do you see it? We are supposed to have an eternal and a gospel perspective on our present suffering. Why? Because in our present suffering, we are following in the footsteps of our Lord and our King and our Saviour. My friend, I ask you as a Christian, does that sound too hard? A life of suffering you've been called to. Is it too hard? Well, understand that not only are you furnished by the Holy Spirit for, for, for that struggle, but understand it shall not always be like that. I need to ask you, what will happen to John the Baptist? What will happen to John the Baptist? Hmm? Because of this. Because of this death, what will happen? One day he will receive the dignity that was denied him on this earth. Yes, at the end of this account, he lies there and he stole stone-cold dead in a tomb. But because of this, because of the fact that Jesus Christ has died for sin, because of the fact that Jesus Christ today, right now, is risen from the grave, John the Baptist, one day it will actually be true that he will be risen. He will be risen. That John will rise, that he will meet his Savior. And in that moment, he's going to receive the dignity and the rewards and the rich that are due to him, all because of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what's even better than that? The same is true for you. If you're in Jesus, the same is true for you. Yes, I'm telling you this morning that you are promised a life of, of difficulty and you are promised as a Christian a life of suffering, but you're also promised a great reward because of the fact that Christ has borne sin. What do we read in scripture? You are going to receive the crown of life that is promised to you. To all those that the, the Lord loves. The crown of life. So yeah, I see you count the cost. Because there is a cost. You count the cost. But see this here. Let us view that suffering with gospel eyes. And this morning, let's praise Jesus. He's endured much more than we ever will. Praise him. As you come at the table this morning, you praise Jesus. And you praise him that our present suffering is not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed to you and to me. Let's pray.